Welcome back to Time Out with the Sports Doctor podcast, where life, sports, and medicine intersect. We're very glad that you continue to support this podcast. You can get the information on any platform uh, where podcasts are played, as well as getting the video content on YouTube. But if you want to just get one place to find all the content, go to my website at drgarrickthesportsdoctor.com and you will find everything on that website. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. So welcome back to another episode of Time Out with the Sports Doctor. And we have a repeat guest today. We have Amanda Hahn and Matt McFarlane. They were on the guest probably on the show probably about a year ago and really happy to have them back with us today. So welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us, Derek. Appreciate it. This is fun. Yeah, excited to be here. Uh, tax season when taxes are top of mind for a lot of people. Sure, sure. So one thing about Keystone uh, CPAs, which they both are co-founders of, is that you guys are really educators. And one thing I want to start off with is there's a difference between filing taxes and tax planning. So that's a fastball right down the lane for you. So I know that's what you guys really specialize in is not only taking care of taxes, but educating people. And you do such a great job with it. So if you don't mind just kind of telling people what the difference is between filing taxes and actually planning your tax strategies. Yeah, I think this is the first time we've been called educators. I don't know, maybe <laughs> one of the first few. <laughs> But yeah, I think, I mean, that's so true because we do uh, have a passion in educating people on kind of like all the different tax benefits that we can get as both business owners and real estate investors. Um, I think, you know, uh, right now for most Americans, we're thinking about filing tax returns for last year. Uh, and I think most people are just kind of like hoping and praying that they don't get a big surprise tax bill come April 15th. So those are uh, is something really important for people to understand that that when it comes to tax savings, when you hear people talk about how they made a ton of money and they didn't pay a lot in taxes, it's usually not by chance. You know, it's like, oh, I accidentally, you know, bought some rental properties or started a business and then I ended up like not having to owe any taxes. I'm super shocked by it. Most of the time it's, it's with design and careful planning. And so that's the difference is when you're meeting with your tax person, you know, now, uh, and following last year's taxes, you're just basically reporting what did or didn't happen last year. There's not too much strategies involved. But when you're meeting with your tax team during the year, before you you know start a business, sell a business, buy rentals, sell rentals, there are so many different possibilities and options that can be used um, to really legitimately save on taxes. And for your sports analogy, that's how you hit a home run. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we shouldn't be filing taxes, like you mentioned, with our fingers crossed, like hopefully this year, you know, when I'm going to have to pay a lot or maybe I'll get some returns. This is something that we should really be keeping up with quarterly. Right. Or even more often than that, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I definitely have a grasp on, you know, kind of a, a good handle on what, what it's going to be in the coming year. Uh, you know, and and have those you know, at least at least on a, have a quarterly conversations for sure. That way there's no surprises. Um, and then, you know, come March or April. There's times where you can decide whether it does. Hey, it doesn't make sense to file returns now, or should I file an extension and wait five to six months? So maybe I have a better idea of what this year is going to look like. Because and sometimes there could be multi-year planning you can do at that point in time as well. So uh, a lot of different things to consider for sure. Yeah, I know. Like a lot, when people also think about taxes quarterly, just because for higher income earners you, you have to pay quarterly estimated taxes sometimes. But planning is really kind of 
transactional based. So we have clients that we talk with them every other quarter or twice a year, or we have clients that we talk to them like, you know, four times a week because they're in the middle of a transaction. You know, I'm transitioning to a new job or something where it's like, okay, well, we got to talk about it before you actually, you know, give your notice or whatever. So I wouldn't just say, oh, it's only quarterly or it's only twice a year. It's, you know, generally it's just as you have transactions and decisions are good times to at least have that conversation with your tax team. And the more you talk to your CPA or tech strategist, the better your answers are going to be. I remember last time you would say, it depends, you know, because what you do is very customized and individualized to each person that you're working with versus just, this is the, you know, everybody can do this or that. Everyone should have their own game plan. I mean, I actually tell people to like really run away uh, when you hear those types of suggestions. Like you said, you know, everybody should form a C corporation and a nonprofit and an LLC, you know, like maybe that's great for like Robert Kiyosaki, but I don't know if that's good for, you know, Derek or Amanda, right? Because it's because yeah. we're not Robert Kiyosaki. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So one thing that you are specialist in is real estate and using real estate for its tax strategies and tax benefits. So I want to kind of break down first different forms of real estate or, you know, you did a great illustration. It was probably about a year or so ago. I don't know. You had your little half arcs where you built um, the layers. Do you happen to have those blocks around? Oh, I'd love to see that again. But. You know, uh, so I took it home because we okay. our little one who's five years old, he loves playing with it because it was a ring, it was a rainbow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll actually, bring it I'll, next time. Okay, cool. I was looking at some of your yeah, older we're, videos. We're, we're working on him. We're working on him understanding the real estate analogies, but he's, he's taking a while. <laughs> so he's still on the bottom mark. Huh? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. not. He doesn't have. He doesn't have the hotel yet. Understood. Understood. All right, but let's start off with short-term real estate. And let's talk about how people can use short-term real estate for investment or tax benefits versus long-term and real estate professional. We can touch that later. Yeah. I mean, for, you know, anyone who's a higher income earner and higher income earners defined as somebody who makes over $150,000 for this purpose. So if you're a high income earner working full-time at your W-2 job or your business, that's not real estate. And you are investing in short-term rentals, like, you know, Airbnb type of properties on the side, the short-term rental tax loophole is actually really, really amazing because it allows you to potentially use any of these tax losses that you create strategically to offset taxes from your W-2 income. Yeah. And again, we're talking about creating tax losses strategically, right? We're not talking about you losing money. So, you know, we're looking at it from, are you, you know, are you uh, maximizing depreciation? Are you being able to shift kind of personal non-deductible expenses and deductible business expenses? Are we, you know, hiring our kids, all that kind of stuff where we can create extra expenses on paper for rentals. If we have those losses on our short-term rentals, by using this strategy, we can use those losses to offset W-2 income and that, you know, for a lot of our clients uh, who are doing the short term rental strategy, this is really a game changer in terms of their tax strategy because it's creating a, you know, a significant chunk of cash through, you know, tax refunds that they can turn around and use to reinvest and buy more, more properties and kind of keep that ball rolling, if you will. Yeah, we see that a lot with like medical professionals right? They're still working. It's like a lot of times like medical professionals don't aren't really a group of people who are really excited to like 
quit working, you know, like stop being a doctor and just start doing real estate full time. And so because, you know, like most of you spent a lot of years uh, earning, right, your credential to, to practice and just love practicing medicine. And so but you still want to like save on taxes. And that's why we see high income earners, you know, like doctors, attorneys, even CPAs really love the short term rental tax loophole because it allows you to do both, right, continue practicing and get the tax savings. And you can continue practicing full time and still get the tax advantages. Yeah, yeah. Now you do have to meet the material participation hour. So it's not like, you know, you don't have to do anything and just right. buy something far away. Uh, right. So to use the short term rental losses, uh, there are several different material participation requirements uh, in terms of hours. But the three most common ones is you and your spouse, if you're married, spend at least 500 hours in the short term rental property. So that's managing it, staging it, dealing with the guests, you know, 500 hours. And then once you meet that, you'll be able to use the losses against your your W-2 income. So this is regardless of how many hours you're working at your job or your medical practice. Yeah. And then if somebody are, you know, spouses can't get to the 500 hour requirement for some reason, kind of the next tier down is did uh, you or you and your spouse spend at least 100 hours on your short term rentals doing all those same things? And it's more time than the next person or business who spent the most amount of time on your property. So think about maybe, uh, you know, you've got 150 hours and you look around and then but the person or company that has the most hours that spent on your short term rentals was I don't know, a cleaning crew over the year and they got 130 hours. Well, you've got more than 100 and it's more time than they are. So you've met the material participation requirements, uh, again, where you can use these losses to offset your income. If you can't get to that tier, then you kind of look at the next tier down as, you know, any number of hours, you know, these kind of material participation hours you spend on your short-term rentals, as long as it's more than the combined hours that everyone else who spent time on your properties was. So it might be you have 90 hours, you add up everyone else's time and it's 85 then you've met the material participation requirements, even though you didn't get to 100 or didn't get to 500. So a couple of different ways to do it. Um, you know, a lot of options, a lot of flexibility there, depending on when you buy throughout the year or two. So we've got clients that buy kind of later in the year, you know, September, October, they put it in service, can't get to 500 hours in two months, but they can still try and meet one of those other requirements. And so we, we see that a lot as well. And what are some of the requirements to meet that minimum participation? You know, it's usually like when it comes to activities, usually we're talking about uh, more hands-on stuff and hands-on not meaning like you have to swing a hammer, but hands-on meaning like it relates to the property. So uh, getting it, you know, furnished, staging it, building the furniture, dealing with the guests, um, coordinating the handyman, you know, basically dealing with property management type of stuff. Uh, those all qualify. I mean, what, doing, you know, if you were doing handyman stuff or doing kind of your own general yeah. contract, that stuff would qualify as well. Yeah, but what wouldn't qualify, I think it's probably more important to talk about would be like non-property specific things. So for example, me signing up to learn about short-term rentals, right? Attending a boot camp, going to a conference. Those types of things are not material participation because you cannot really tie that specific to a property and it's not really, you know, helping with kind of the day-to-day -day operations of that investment. So that's kind of typically how we look at it. You know, is this time directly associated with you know, ABC property. Now that's very good and very valuable information for people to know because you could be doing a lot of a task that does not qualify and still wasting your time. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, I would say with time. Yeah. I mean, if you are, you know, if, if you get, I, I think that um, we always start out talking about like the amazing 
uh, stories of how, you know, somebody made $500,000 and they pay no tax because they had three short-term rentals. And that, that is really amazing, of course. But I think it's important to understand too that even if you don't meet the hours, you just purely passive, right? Like I live in California and I have a Florida short-term rental that's managed right. by someone else. I've never seen it. Um, there is still benefit to investing in it because at a minimum, everyone who invests, we can always use write-offs, depreciation, and all these tax benefits to offset rental income. So if I'm going to cash flow $30,000 this year and not pay taxes on it, um, that's still a win too. And everybody is able to benefit from that perspective. A win-win. So now let's talk about long-term real estate, uh, which is a totally different tax strategy versus short-term. So let's differentiate that and then talk about real estate professional status. Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, when we're talking about short-term rentals, just so everyone knows, we're talking about where the average customer uses for the year is seven days or less. So it doesn't necessarily, just because you put on Airbnb or something, you could put on Airbnb and have the average stay be 10 days for the year. If that was the case, it wouldn't be a short-term rental, it would be a long-term rental. So um, that's kind of where we distinguish between the two from a tax perspective. There's a couple other nuances to it, but not worth getting into right now. But for long-term rentals, kind of the idea, the strategy can be very similar is, you know, if we can create losses on paper for our rental properties, how can we use those losses to offset our W-2 income, our business income being from being a physician's practice or whatever it is, right? And you can do that by qualifying as a real estate professional. Now, Qualifying as a real estate professional, it's a little, it definitely is more time consuming than just kind of doing the short-term rental thing, you know, um, by itself. So yeah, I don't know if you want to kind of mention the, the real estate professional thing, but. Yeah. So for real estate professional, uh, it's a little bit harder to achieve because you have to, uh, there's three roles. The first is you have to spend at least 750 hours in real estate. And for those of you who have a job or run a business, the second requirement is you have to actually spend more time in real estate than your job. So if you're a doctor and you're working 2000 hours a year, you have to have more than 2000 hours a year to be a real estate professional. Uh, and then the Which third I guess is theoretically possible, but I'm not sure anybody <laughs> would want to actually do that. Right. And then the third requirement is that you meet material participation hours. And the material participation is the same set of rules that we talked about with the short-term rentals, where it's like, you know, 500 hours or, you know, 100 hours and more time than everyone else. And so, um, so those are the three layers. So you can see how for someone who's working full-time, it's going to be very difficult to overcome you know, one of those three rules that says more time in real estate than your job. And so that's why for a lot of high income earners that are dual household high income earners, it's, it's a lot more difficult. We do see this work out fairly well when you have like one high income earning spouse and the other person maybe is like a stay at home mom or stay at home dad, because then that non-working spouse can try to be a real estate professional. They don't have this other job hours they have to overcome. If you're enjoying this episode, don't wait to the end to share it. Share it now. Share this with a friend or a colleague that you think might find value in this information. And then also make sure that you click and leave us a five-star review and give us feedback because we really value your feedback and your input. Now back to the episode. And what about people... Do you have clients that are involved with both long and short term? 
Oh my gosh, do you want to hear the real story? So not only do we have clients yeah. that are due long and short, we have clients who change properties within the same year. So like a fourplex wow. where one unit is long, the other unit is short, they yeah. live in the third unit, they're rehabbing the fourth, they'll move into the first one again. So yeah, there's all kinds of different things we've seen. But you know, when you're involved in long and short, I think you just have to be a little bit strategic. And so one example I'll use is like, let's say that you are married to someone who's not working and you have a bunch of long-term rentals. So if you can meet real estate professional status easily, then what I would suggest is for the short-term rentals, you have the average guest stay to be greater than seven. Because like Matt said earlier, if it's greater than seven days, even though right. it's on Airbnb, we treat yeah. it as a long-term rental. So now we put them all in the same bucket. And because you or your spouse is already a real estate professional, we've already met all those requirements. Yeah, now that's really good, really good. And those are called complicated investors and expect to pay more on your taxes when it's time to file, right? <laughs> you, you're talking about the person that lives in 25% of his fourplex for three months of the year and then moves out and moves to another one that does the same thing. That never happens. You know, actually, yeah. so what I typically see in those are new investors, right? It's it's usually the very, the very new investors who need to get the FHA, FHA loan and really mm -hmm. trying to like bootstrap it where they're like, I'm living in here, rehabbing and I'm moving out. That's or, you know, more advanced ride. investors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the more advanced investors, they're not messing with that. You know, they don't want to live in construction. And move every couple or, months. Or, or, you know, who knows? Maybe they're trying to get a primary residence mortgage on a fourplex and like the whole property is my primary residence, Mr. Lender. That never happens <laughs> yeah. either. Right. Right. All right. So, one another hot topic is bonus depreciation. And Amanda, I know you've been talking recently about some news that's out that bonus depreciation might go back to 100%. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So in 2024, right now, we still uh, under current law, we still have uh, what's called bonus depreciation. Uh, bonus depreciation basically is a perk that the IRS provided starting several years ago. And they said, you know, instead of writing off certain assets over five years or seven years or 15 years, you get to take a larger chunk of, of that upfront um, earlier in the year. So we can take uh, you know, more tax benefit. So under current law, we get 60% bonus depreciation, which means if I spent $100 on this five-year asset, I can probably write off $60 of it immediately. Then the rest I would, you know, depreciate still over the five years. Uh, last year, the bonus depreciation was 80%. So the, you know, the original rule was we're going to just dwindle it down from 100 to 80 to 60 to 40 next year. Uh, but what's happening right now in Congress is in, you know, now with all these different proposals, there is one where they're wanting to bring back 100% bonus depreciation. And the really amazing thing is not only are they wanting to bring it back for 2024, uh, they're also wanting to bring it retroactive to 2023 <laughs> and also forward to 2025. So for if you're an investor or even a business owner and you bought assets that you could depreciate, then that means you know anything purchased last year could now possibly eligible for 100% bonus depreciation. Yeah, and kind of going back talking about you know tax deadlines coming up, right? So this law, just for everyone's benefit, you know, as of today, has not passed yet. I mean, it's obviously moving along the process, and it looks good that it's probably going to pass. But so if you're finding yourself in a situation where like what we're telling our clients is you know go ahead and get your tax returns you know more or less prepared, you know 90, 95% done. And then let's see what happens with this because, well, you know, let's say it passes. You want to obviously make sure, and you've got eligible assets in 2023, you want to make sure you're taking advantage of it, right? So 
Uh, we're going to need a way for our tax software to get updated. That might take a little bit of time, you know. So there's a th few things that have to fall into place probably before you actually go ahead and file your return. But yeah, we want people to be aware of it, kind of keep you know keep moving along in the process, um, but just plan accordingly, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that information. And one other thing is, what money do people use to invest? Because anytime you have a buying a property, you're going to have some upfront money. And many times that can be one of the obstacles that people have to overcome. Mm -hmm. I don't want to spend my cash or I don't have the credit to do whatever. What other ways or some alternative investment strategies, self-directed IRAs or things that do you see your clients using to invest in real estate? Yeah, I mean, that's a great one. I do think that, you know, most people that we meet have money in retirement accounts. But for some reason, you know, we all only think about that from the perspective, like stocks, bonds and mutual funds, right? Like, oh, I got right. money in my work 401k or my IRA. And I'm either going to decide on this mutual fund or, you know, that stock investment. And it's really important to understand that when it comes to retirement accounts, the IRS does not restrict it to the market. They actually, you know, they're, they're really, really flexible in terms of what you can invest in. And real estate, uh, you know, a property on Main Street uh, is one of those asset classes. You can use your retirement account to invest in a syndication. So let's say you know somebody who's putting together a multifamily deal. You want to be one of 20 investors. You can do that. If you know someone who's going to fix and flip and you wanted to lend money to them, Right. Instead of using your cash, you can tap into maybe your IRA or 401k and potentially use that money to invest instead of the stock market if you think you can generate higher returns. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, doing self-directed investing can work for people's retirement accounts if they're looking to kind of continue to build their portfolio and for retirement uh, with respect to properties that they might be buying kind of personally with rates having changed drastically, obviously, over the last couple of years. Uh, what we're seeing a lot more of now is uh, more seller finance deals. So you're buying a property, maybe you're getting a smaller loan from the bank, and then you're getting the seller to kind of finance the rest of it, or vice versa, for that matter. Um, we're also seeing a lot more subject to deals that you know we saw years ago, but those are coming kind of coming back into uh, fruition as well. So those are ways you can kind of people can get into properties with, you know, theoretically less money down than you know the typical deal. Mm -hmm. Now, with the seller financing, is that something that the client generally just has the conversation? Do you mind if we continue with the, your financing or how does that typically work? It really depends on kind of how you structure the deal. <laughs> seller financing, I hear, I mean, we see this a lot. There's a lot more of that now because I think just of our demographics, you have a lot of more people who are retiring. So if you think of someone who maybe has been an investor for you know their whole life, and so real estate is what they know and what they love, but you know maybe they're at retirement age where they just want to travel the world. They no longer want to be landlords. But if they were to sell their property, they have to either 1031 exchange, right? Which I'm sure we'll talk about. They have to 1031 exchange for the tax, or they're going to have to pay the taxes on it, right? And so, so for for a seller like that, we as buyers can really approach them and talk about seller financing because the benefit for the seller is when they carry the note in a seller finance deal, they get to defer the taxes uh, over the, the note term. So if it's a five-year amortization or a 30-year amortization, uh, they can defer the taxes, which gives them more time to do planning. Um, and also, I think what I find, especially with these types of, of sellers, is 
they're they're not usually planning on selling to cash out and put their money in the stock market, right? Because they love real estate. And so for them to carry a note, knowing that their money is secured by that same property they used to own. And if you default, they get the property back. I think it's pretty reassuring to them. So I think that's why we're seeing a lot more of those types of deals. Yeah, I mean, to them, it's right. It's, it's uh it's almost like easier mailbox money, right? Than it was mm -hmm. before. Because <laughs> now it's your yeah. headache. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just keep the property uh, in the same location and we're good. Yeah, but I think for the buyers, you know, I, I mean, it's really pretty amazing too, because if you bought a property seller financing and, you know, like Matt said, if you have a small amount down payment or even no down payment, you get you start taking depreciation and your depreciation is the purchase price of the property or you know your down payment and the loan that you're assuming so it's a great way to you know control an asset have it start depreciating for you and get the tax benefits with a lot you know less money out of your pocket so sort of like a win-win yeah yeah so i think this is a good time for a commercial break so if you're enjoying this information or if you are overwhelmed with this information there is a place to go to get more of it. <laughs> we have authors here, right? So we have two books, uh, both that have been authored by Amanda Hahn and Mac McFarlane. So the first one is tech strategy. No, the first one is advanced tech strategies, right? And then that's the, the second one, but we won't we won't be technical. One? Yeah, tech <laughs> strategies for the savvy real estate investor. Yeah, the word savvy threw me off, right? So yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's their book. Uh, get their book. It's available on Amazon. Where else can they find this book? Uh, so you can also buy it on Bigger Pockets. Uh, I think if you buy it from Bigger Pockets, there are some like freebies that come with it. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, Amazon, Bars and Nobles, anywhere that books are sold. Yeah. And also following along with Keystone CPA or Amanda Hine on Instagram or social media, she gives tidbits like this daily. So plenty of information to get for free. Uh, yes, yes, yeah. If, uh, I am usually on Instagram as Amanda Han CPA, and um, you can find Matt in the back of my Instagram uh, as a backup dancer. Yeah, there you sometimes go. as a dancer, sometimes as holding her stuff. You know, whatever I'm, right, whatever I'm right. told to do. Or he's my cameraman, so you don't see him because he's behind the camera. <laughs> he's producing these great films. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My my success ratio with filming uh, videos is very low, unfortunately. <laughs> Say, let's do this again. Take two, right? Yes. All right. So one thing I want to talk about before we get out of here is you mentioned 1031. So the power of getting started with real estate and being able to leverage to create wealth. Let's talk about 1031 exchange and how that works. Yeah, I mean, I think in the past couple of years, you know, um, real estate market just in general has taken off so significantly. And with many investors, you just want to kind of grow your real estate. And so for some people, it means getting into bigger and better properties, right? And so if you're analyzing your portfolio, you decided, you know what, these three single families aren't performing as well, I can maybe sell it and reinvest in an apartment building or commercial center and get better appreciation and, and returns. 1031 exchange is a really great way for you to be able to do that without having to lose part of your gain to income taxes or capital gains taxes. Yeah, we kind of kind of we sometimes we refer to that as as a tax drag, right? It's 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 slowing down your your wealth building, right? But if you can if you can get out of those properties by, you know, following kind of there's a lot of rules for 1031 exchanges. But yeah, if you can buy up, you know, and maybe you're scaling up to the next bigger property. So you're selling that single family house, buying that 
fourplex, aplex, whatever it is, maybe you hold that one for five to seven years and kind of do that again for a bigger, you know, apartment building, uh, commercial property, um, self-storage property. You know, we see this a lot. So it's kind of a way to keep keep the wealth building going without, you know, having to slow down to pay the IRS along the way. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it can work out really well for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you both for your time. Anytime I sit down and talk to you, I learn a lot and I'm sure the audience will benefit a lot from this as well. Uh, tell people how they can work with you as they're, you know, if they're looking for a new CPA or how they could just work with you guys. Yeah, I think um, the best place to uh, find information about our services is at our website, which is keystonecpa.com. Um, we also have a lot of great free resources. So if the short-term rental loophole or a real estate professional uh, are new terms to you, uh, or if you just want to know more about like legal entities and how do I you know, pay my kids and take a tax write-off, we have a free tax savings toolkit that you can download from our website directly uh, at keystonecpa.com. And um, yeah, like I said, you know, best place to find me is on Instagram. I do give tidbits every day on, you know, tax tips. Yeah, thanks for having us, Darren. Appreciate it. This is fun. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thank you for continuing to support this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. And if you haven't done so, subscribe so you continue to get the updated episode. Until later, peace. Stopping. You are now tuned in. Trust you don't want to miss. This is where life, sports, and medicine. Is.